welcome to another episode of NeuroPodcases. In today's episode, I'm joined by Professor Bruce Campbell, who's a stroke neurologist working at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. To access the radiology images that we discuss in this podcast, please visit neuropodcases.co.uk, where you can find these in the attached case notes. Welcome to another episode of NeuroPodcases. Today I'm joined by Professor Bruce Campbell, who is a stroke neurologist working at Royal Melbourne Hospital. Hi, Bruce. Hey, John. Thanks. Uh, thanks for joining us today. So, in a number of the a number of other podcast episodes, we've talked about the management of acute stroke, and we've made reference to how advanced stroke imaging can guide uh, management decisions uh, for stroke patients. And today what I wanted to do was dig a bit deeper and go into more detail about what that advanced stroke imaging is, uh, and in particular looking at CT perfusion scans. And what I thought I'd do is just start by talking about CT perfusion in general, and then use a couple of uh, real-life case examples that have helped uh, change how a, a stroke patient presenting with a stroke has been managed. Um, so just to begin with, uh, Bruce, are you able to tell us uh, exactly what does a CT perfusion scan entail and what are the sort of practical considerations of, of doing this scanning in an acute stroke setting? Sure, John. CT perfusion is repetitively scanning through the brain whilst you watch a bolus of contrast that's given intravenously wash in and wash out of the brain. So um, essentially what you see in a stroke is with an arterial occlusion, there is delayed arrival of flow in that area because the only way it's going to get through an occlusion is by a leptomeningeal or other collateral pathways. Uh, so that takes longer. And then generally the, re- the flow is reduced in that area as well, um, sometimes critically. And so we use thresholds of cerebral blood, vo- um, blood flow and also cerebral blood volume, which are two of the other parameters that we look at for severe injury that's likely to be irreversible at the time of the scan. So um, you've got a concentration time curve there. So every pixel in the image from a CT perfusion, you can see the contrast wash in and wash out. The time it takes to reach peak concentration, the time to peak is that delay I was talking about. So that's increased in areas of stroke and also downstream of the stenosis. Uh, and you can also see the area under the curve is a cerebral blood volume, and that's, if you're looking at CT perfusion visually, the best way to detect areas that have essentially not got any contrast arrival, and therefore the flow is reduced to a point that's likely to be irreversibly damaged at the time you're seeing that patient. Okay, and in terms of practicalities, uh, obviously with acute strokes, we're, we're told that uh, time is brain. Um, when in the sequence of scanning would you, you typically do a CT perfusion scan and how long does it take? We like to do it immediately after the non-contrast CT. Uh, the acquisition itself takes around 60 seconds and then there's a couple of minutes to reconstruct and process and if you've got automated software it spits out maps without any use of intervention. So on average around the world, to, if you're using RapidSoft for instance, it takes about two and a half minutes to go from the beginning of the scan to having the output um, ready to interpret. Okay. And uh, trainees listening may be familiar with uh, other scores that can be done on non-contrast CT scans, such as the ASPECT score, uh, which is commonly done when making treatment decisions for both thrombolysis and thrombectomy. I guess what, what additional information is given by a CT perfusion scan and how does it compare to things like the ASPECT score when it's been looked at? Sure. So ASPECT has a number of issues. Um, inter-rater agreement being one of them and also insensitivity to ischemia early in the first couple of hours after stroke. So uh, we don't particularly look at the aspect score here. It's obviously important to look at the non-contrast CT 
very carefully and identify which areas do have loss of grey white differentiation, but whether you calculate point scores for that is, is up to you. The um, main issue with the points is that they're not volumetrically weighted at all, so you lose three points for the basal ganglia um, and insula, and it um, can put you in a, in a dangerously low position uh, for tissue that really doesn't make a lot of difference to the patient's outcome. Okay. So when they've looked at people with a low aspects of 0 to 5, 60% of them actually have a core volume on CT perfusion less than 50 mils. And that's one of the issues is that, you know, we would regard less than 50 mil core as quite a good range to be treating patients, whereas um, they might have reached that low aspects where people might not want to be treating them. Um, and that really comes about from that proximal middle cerebral occlusion, taking out the basal ganglia, you lose three points, you've only got to lose a couple more. Um, and it's very different to a distal middle cerebral artery occlusion where the basal ganglia are spared. And if you lose three points for three large cortical areas, that's that's a much worse prognosis than the three points for the basal ganglia areas. So I don't find that kind of scoring at all useful. To be honest, the, the perfusion is particularly about diagnosis and getting an accurate diagnosis. So there are lots of stroke mimics. Uh, there are lots of people with tricky presentations where you're not sure about old stroke versus new stroke um, and other you know, problems that perfusion can help you with. And if you get an accurate diagnosis, then you um, can move on with treatment faster than prevaricating about whether it is or is not a stroke. Yeah. I'd just like to go through um, an actual case that, that, that I was involved in. So this is a a code stroke at 7.30 a.m., so just towards the end of the night shift, and an 82-year-old female who is a, has a very good pre-morbid background, so her modified ranking score is zero, so she's independent, lives with her husband. Uh, and she was found by her husband at 7 a.m. this morning with dense weakness uh, down the left side of her body, and associated with that, she also had a homonymous hemianopia as well as neglect. So clinically, she's presenting with what would seem to be a right MCA syndrome, and you're able to ascertain that she was last known well at 11 o'clock when she went to bed. Uh, she's diabetic and hypertensive, she's not on any antiplatelets or anticoagulants and her blood pressure is okay. So she's taken for a, a scan and you can see here the, the non-con CT that was done. I think previously we've talked about what to look for on a non-con CT and I think if you're able just to emphasize what it is you look for when you're looking at a non-con in a stroke. Yeah, so we routinely format five millimeter slices, which are great for parenchymal detail, and one millimeter slices, which are great for hyperdense arteries, and also distinguishing whether there's a sulcus or a, you know some sort of partial volumeing problem rather than subacute infarct. So I'd look through the five millimeters first, make sure first pass that there's no hemorrhage, um, not just in the area of the brain you're interested in, but on the you know, extraaxial spaces and, and other parts of the brain. Then be looking more carefully for subacute infarction and, and subtle signs of grey white differentiation. I've moved to a something like a 40-40 stroke window, which really emphasises the grey white differentiation. Mm -hmm. Look carefully at areas like the insula and the caudate and olentiform, which tend to be particularly sensitive to those early signs of ischemia. Mm -hmm. There you've got the one millimetre slices and the beautiful demonstration of a hyperdense artery. That probably is extending from the carotid terminus um, into the M1 segment um, and so you, you've got a, a large vessel occlusion mm -hmm. so not only have you diagnosed stroke not um, Todd's paresis or migraine or a psychiatric disturbance but you know that there's going to be a target for large you know uh, clot retrieval essentially. And um, at this stage how would perfusion scan be um, ordering your thoughts from a sort of from a management perspective? Well she's in the extended time window so um, 
woken up with stroke. Um, she's beyond six hours of the last known well. She's beyond four and a half hours of the last known well for thrombolysis. So um, by our guidelines, at least, we would use the CT perfusion in this situation to determine if we can do thrombolysis in the extended window. Mm -hmm. And we take the midpoint, uh, which is uh, 3 a.m., and go up to nine hours from then. So this woman's certainly within that period uh, for thrombolysis, and we also would be taking her for endovascular thrombectomy. Okay. So when you've got those two treatment options, there is some debate about whether you need to give the thrombolysis, and there are trials addressing that, but um, we, we would, in our case, enrol into a trial of tenecteplase versus no other treatment and, and go to thrombectomy. Okay, and then I've got the CT perfusion scan here. So if you're able just to, to talk us through, um, I guess, what the key things are that we're looking at there. So this is output from the RAPID software, and you can see CBV is the cerebral blood volume, CBF, cerebral blood flow, NTT, mean transit time, which is another delay parameter, um, and Tmax, which is a, the delay parameter we actually use. So I would focus um, your eyes on the CBV and look side to side in that right hemisphere there. I'm not really seeing major areas of reduced cerebral blood volume. Um, John's helpfully uh, magnified the CBS slice through the basal ganglia and you can see that there is reduced flow in the basal ganglia. So that, not surprisingly, with that long uh, clot in the proximal segment has likely occluded the lenticulostriates and that will have killed the basal ganglia. Mm -hmm. But the rest of the cortical region has very well-preserved flow Mm -hmm. and uh, volume, and that's the late on TMAX. So this is someone with a really good penumbral profile. Um, their aspects may be dropping rapidly in the basal ganglia there, but the, the, the tissue that matters in the cortex is very salvageable. Okay. Then uh, what you're also able to get is a sort of an automated output as well. Um, are you just able to tell us how this how this is sort of calculated and, uh, and what, how you interpret this? Yeah, so on the left we have applied a <clears throat> cerebral blood flow less than 30% of normal brain. So severely reduced cerebral blood flow is the um, threshold we use for irreversible injury and you can see that nothing has actually met that threshold. Now if you look carefully in the top right image of that series you can see that there is reduced flow in the basal ganglia and, and that just hasn't quite reached threshold but um, mm. the, the cortex is certainly well above that threshold. And then on the right, you've got a Tmax greater than six second delay, which is on average the tissue that's going to infarct if you don't open the artery. So it's the tissue at risk. It's the tissue that's going to be contributing to a clinical deficit. I presume this woman had a quite severe right hemisphere syndrome. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's diagnostic of stroke. It's, uh, you, you obviously got to see that uh, delayed flow in a known arterial territory distribution. Like all things, there are artifacts, and sometimes you'll see uh, green brain either all over because there's been a technical problem or in the ventricles or around the, the side of the head or something like that. So um, you, you obviously need to check it with your knowledge of anatomy. And if it's in the distribution of arterial territory, then that's most likely going to be a stroke. Okay. And in a case like this, uh, you've already alluded to the various treatment options. Um, uh, so I guess you would be letting the intervent neurointerventionists know about this patient and possibly consider giving thrombolysis if that was suitable. Yeah, so outside the trials that we have running, um, and there's the timeless trial in the US and the eternal trial outside the US, but um, the EXTEND trial that showed that thrombolysis worked in the extended time window did not 
have thrombectomy in it. It was before uh, the Dawn and Diffuse 3 trials really came out. So um, we know that thrombolysis on its own is helpful, but when you have a thrombectomy that's about to be performed, and if you're in a centre that does thrombectomy and the team are in-house, that's where we don't really know that adding thrombolysis is beneficial. So if you're at a centre that doesn't do thrombectomy or it's after hours and it's going to take an hour or two to get the team in, I would give this patient thrombolysis, um, and otherwise I might just go direct to the cath lab. Okay, and in this case, it's fairly clear cut that not being a large irreversible core. Um, what kind of values would you look at there and still consider treatment? What What have the trials shown us? So the extend trial criteria required greater than ten mils of mismatch. You can see there's 118 mils in this uh, in this patient, and a mismatch ratio of greater than 1.2. Uh, diffuse 3, which was the uh, thrombectomy and extended window time window, um, had a mismatch ratio greater than 1.8 and absolute mismatch greater than 15 mils. In, in large vessel occlusion, those differences are irrelevant. Um, everyone will have mismatch if they've got less than 70 mils of core volume. Okay. So that's probably the, the main thing to take away is that you need to have a small core and a lot of a small purple area, which we don't have any here, and a yeah. large green area. Okay. Um, so this is an example where, um, despite being out of the sort of classic time windows, a patient is able to receive treatment for acute stroke um, and uh, CT perfusion has obviously been key there. We'll just do another case now. Um, this is a, a similar story. So 78-year-old female, lives with her husband, independent, and she was found at 7am with a dense weakness affecting the left face, arm and leg. So very similar. Also got a homonymous hemianopia and neglect. So she was last known well at uh, 10.30 when she went to bed. And again, is not on any blood thinners or anticoagulants. So similar syndrome and the imaging uh, done again this time, just to, to go through. So on the non-con CT, again, you can see evidence of a hyperdense vessel in the right uh, MCA, uh, and that's confirmed on CT angiography. And the CT perfusion looked quite different. Are you able to talk us through what you're seeing here? Yeah, so again, if we focus on that cerebral blood volume, cerebral blood flow, uh, you can see that there's severely reduced uh, flow and volume in that right frontal region. And there uh, is uh, you know, severely delayed TMAX throughout that region as well. So this person's going to have a much larger area of irreversibly injured brain, and um, they may or may not meet the criteria for... Um, thrombolysis and thrombectomy depending on what we see on the next um, more um, segmented yeah. view. And what I should say one of the things we, we showed in that uh, Lancet meta-analysis of the extended window thrombolysis studies was that the automated calculation does seem to be important. So in ECAS4, which was a sister trial that used visual assessment of MRI, uh, about half the patients didn't actually have the automated thresholded um, profile when they were read centrally and those patients didn't show any signal of benefit. In fact, the results went in the wrong direction. So I think you do need to be a little bit strict about um, applying the criteria in the extended time window. And, and sort of just eyeballing it therefore isn't isn't really an equivalent measure? It doesn't seem to be. I'm sure if you're an expert in it, you can do it. Um, and you know, some of our early Tenecteblase trials were eyeballed by experts and that worked. But yeah, just People tend to be a bit generous, and uh, most of those patients that were included in ECAS4 were very small perfusion lesions that just didn't have enough benefit over natural history to justify the risk. Okay, here's the automated uh, count. So here you can see uh, some things being picked up as core. Um, what's what's your thoughts on um, on what that's showing? Do you think that's all all real? I think probably it is. Um, there's a little hole in the middle that's probably not real. I suspect that that is is also dead, but um, that 
corresponds if you just go back the slide to the area that you would have said visually had reduced cerebral blood flow. Um, it is always worth looking at the volume relative to the flow because some people have these sort of soft edges to their lesion that um, you might see a bit more reversibility if you get very fast reperfusion. And it's one of the things we haven't talked about is that 30% threshold was developed based on people who'd had MRI shortly afterwards. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a pretty good surrogate um, for what was irreversibly injured, but some people believe that you can reverse DWI lesions if you're super fast in, in reperfusing. And there probably are little areas around the edge if you're very fast in reperfusing that you can re reverse on a CBF threshold. But generally, if it's low on cerebral blood volume, that's very specific. So I think in this case, the cerebral blood volume core is a little bit smaller. Mm -hmm. um, and it's in an area that's not super eloquent. So, um, you know, you can always make individual judgments, but strictly by the diffuse three criteria, for instance, this woman would not yeah. uh, qualify for a thrombectomy. Um, and obviously both of these cases woke up with symptoms. Is the CT perfusion here just acting as a surrogate marker for time, or is it actually more that, that's going on there? Is, is, are there differences between patients in terms of how, they, how their strokes develop? There's to Dorothy Dix of it, yeah, there are very much differences between uh, how strokes develop. I was just uh, asked before this podcast about a patient who had an onset two hours ago. The non-contrast CT still looked good, but they had no collaterals whatsoever. And that's just typical that uh, the non-contrast CT lags behind uh, the state. And most of our patients who are in the extended time window are actually unknown onset. And some of them, particularly with wake-ups, we suspect um, in many cases the stroke has occurred around the time the patient's woken up. So particularly when you see this picture of a large core on CT perfusion with a relatively preserved CT, it just means the patient's early on. It doesn't mean that the tissue's necessarily salvageable. Okay. And it um, brings me on to another question, really, which is, um, I guess if you do this routinely, CT perfusion, and you do CT perfusion on patients who are presenting early with a, with a known, uh, last known well time under six hours, um, the thrombectomy trials, as we heard from Professor Yan, majority of them didn't use uh, advanced stroke imaging in the diagnosis. What role does it have, in your opinion, in those patients? Yeah, I think it's a, a modifying factor. So we showed in the Hermes data that even with 150 mils of core, there was still a therapeutic benefit relative to not doing a thrombectomy, but the absolute outcomes drop right down. So you might be talking a 10 or 15% chance of getting back to functional independence once you're in those large core uh, um, kind of zones. So I think in trial patients it works because trial patients are fit and healthy otherwise, but in reality we have patients who have comorbidities and may not be as fit and healthy prior. And so if you're adding someone with comorbidities and 150 mils of core, even if they're two hours, you're not going to be expecting a miraculous recovery. And I think you know that's just something to feed in. So whilst we say we do not exclude patients exclusively on the basis of a large core within six hours, uh, there are some patients that we decide not to treat. And the one I was asked about a few minutes ago uh, is one of them simply because of advanced age, frailty and a large core. Um, even though they're early, there's, there's not much we're going to achieve for that patient. Okay. And are there any times where CT perfusion can be normal, but the diagnosis remains a stroke? Are there any kind of pitfalls to be aware of? So once you reperfuse, CT perfusion will usually go back to normal. Um, so if you can just because you've got a normal CTP doesn't mean there wasn't a clot that's now reperfused. And sometimes you actually see hyperperfusion, a bit like reactive hyperemia and other tissue beds after reperfusion. And then the big one that's more relevant, because frankly, if 
they've had a stroke and they've reperfused, you don't have a target for therapy anymore, and I don't particularly mind uh, that being normal. But lacuna stroke is a potentially treatable form of stroke with thrombolysis, and we see them about 50% of the time if you look really carefully, and um, you know, you're looking for very subtle abnormalities deep down, and they can be hard to pick. So I think if the patient has a clinical syndrome that's consistent with a lacuna syndrome and you don't see anything on CTP, I wouldn't ignore that patient. I'd still treat them yeah. um, and get the MRI to prove it later. You mentioned at the start that it's going to be so helpful with um, making a positive diagnosis of stroke or, or positive diagnosis of stroke mimic. What, what changes do you see with some of the common mimics such as seizure or migraine? So seizure, you generally see hyperperfusion if you catch it at the right time. Um, so that's reduced Tmax um, and increase cerebral blood flow um, and uh, with migraine there's generally a subtle reduction in flow sometimes a subtle delay but not reaching the kind of levels and so it's important to understand whatever map system you're using with your CT perfusion what's the kind of level of delay that you see with arterial occlusion like that greater than six second delay there and what you might see with a carotid stenosis which is often a lot milder um, and in the external watersheds and what you'd see with a uh, migraine which is a more diffuse non-vascular territory very subtle delay of a couple of seconds maybe um, or nothing at all okay and um, well thanks very much for for your time today it's been really really helpful thanks very much Sean. Well, pleasure cheers bruce thanks Thank you for listening. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at neuropodcases.co.uk.